I'm Dr. David Clark. I lecture in theology at the University of Roehampton in southwest London. Thanks for joining me again on this podcast entitled Theology and Identity. If you've listened to previous podcasts, by now you'll have a feel for my approach. But for those who might be joining me for the first time, I'll give a quick summary of how I'm doing theology and how I'm approaching the Bible in this program. Particularly with regard to the Old Testament, the Bible is written as a historical narrative or a story. The central theme in this narrative is a promise given to Abraham that through his descendants, the reconciling, restorative blessing of Yahweh will reach all nations of the earth. Over the course of what I hope will be the first season of this podcast, I've been looking at how this Abrahamic promise develops and grows as a literary theme. I want to know what are the twists and turns that it takes in the narrative, and how this impacts the theology and self-identity of the people of Israel. I'm not an apologist. I'm not trying to prove or disprove anything about the Bible. I'm not on a direct offensive against other religions or worldviews or identity constructs. But I am persuaded that there is something powerful at work in these narratives. There is something in these texts that time and time again, across the course of history, has changed lives. For thousands of years, people of all nations and social classes and ethnicities have found that something in the Old Testament deeply resonates with their own life experience. There's something about Yahweh, the God of Israel, that draws people to worship him. And that's what I'm trying to better understand. One of the things I love about the Old Testament is the brutal honesty we find within. On one hand, the text very clearly rolls out how Yahweh has blessed and set apart the people of Israel. He's made a covenant with them, and he expects them to faithfully honor the terms of that covenant. But at the same time, the Old Testament presents in very explicit detail the many ways that Israel and its leaders failed to follow God and keep his commands. There is no better example of how someone could be so blessed and yet become so evil than the character of King Solomon. On one hand, he is presented as the wisest, richest, most internationally influential king that Israel ever had. On the other hand, he worshiped idols, he practiced human sacrifice, he was a sex addict, and he implemented a race-based system of enslavement in his own kingdom. So our task for today is to look more closely at the character of King Solomon and see what theological conclusions we can draw from this analysis. Let's first look at the backstory. We remember from our previous episode that King David wanted to build a temple in the city of Jerusalem. God spoke to David and said, I like your idea, but you're not going to be the one to carry it out. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, it reads, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. 
From this point on in David's life, his most important mission was to prepare his son Solomon for leadership. In 1 Chronicles chapter 22, we read all about David's preparations for the building of the temple. And there it says that he spoke to Solomon and said, My son, I had it in my heart to build a house to the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me, saying, You have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name, because you have shed so much blood before me on the earth. Behold, a son shall be born to you, who shall be a man of rest. I will give him rest from all his surrounding enemies. For his name shall be Solomon, and I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name. He shall be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish his royal throne in Israel forever. Now, my son, the Lord be with you, so that you may succeed in building the house of the Lord your God, as he has spoken concerning you. Only may the Lord grant you discretion and understanding, so that when he gives you charge over Israel, you may keep the law of your God. Then you will prosper if you are careful to observe the statutes and the rules that the Lord commanded Moses for Israel. Be strong and courageous. Fear not. Do not be dismayed. So this is what David said to Solomon. Solomon had everything going for him. He had the godly example of his father. He had his father's guidance and wisdom. And David did everything he could do to prepare Solomon for success. David clearly believed that Solomon was the chosen one of whom God had spoken. Solomon would not only build the temple, but he would be an almost messianic figure who would make the kingdom of Israel so powerful and so glorious that its kings would never cease to rule. We remember from the last episode that David clearly saw the connection between the promise that had been given to Abraham and the promise that had been given to his own family. David understood that his family was the next link in the chain. Yahweh's purposes for the human race would be accomplished through his line, the restoration and reconciliation of all nations in all places across all time would be brought about by a descendant of David. And David firmly believed that his son Solomon would be the man to set all of this in motion. As we read about the life of Solomon, we see that he got off to a blazing start. In 2 Chronicles chapter 1, God appears and says, Ask of me whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And it says then, And Solomon said to God, you have shown great and steadfast love to David my father and have made me king in his place. O Lord God, let your word to David my father be now fulfilled, for you have made me king over a people as numerous as the dust of the earth. Give me now wisdom and knowledge to go out and come in before this people. For who can govern this people of yours, which is so great? So God answered Solomon and said, because this was in your heart, and you have not asked for possessions or wealth, honor, or the life of those who hate you, 
and have not even asked for long life, but have asked for wisdom and knowledge for yourself that you may govern my people over whom I have made you king. Wisdom and knowledge are granted to you. I will also give you riches, possessions, and honor, such as none of the kings had who were before you, and none after you shall have the like. So as the narrative progresses, we get a glimpse of Solomon's wisdom, his power, and his influence. We read the story of the two prostitutes who brought a baby before him, each claiming to be the mother. And in a brilliant manner, Solomon finds a way to identify who was telling the truth. We read the story of the Queen of Sheba, who visited Solomon and marveled at his wealth and wisdom. In 1 Kings chapter 10, it says, Thus King Solomon excelled over all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. And the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. Every one of them brought his present, articles of silver and gold, garments, myrrh, spices, horses, and mules, so much year by year. And Solomon brought peace and prosperity to Israel. In 1 Kings 4 it says, Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. But most importantly, Solomon completed the temple. And on the day of dedication, he prayed, And now arise, O Lord God, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests, O Lord God, be clothed with salvation, and let your saints rejoice in your goodness. O Lord God, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. Remember your steadfast love for David your servant. And after Solomon prayed, God responded. The text says, As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priest could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, his steadfast love endures forever. But in the midst of all this success and all this fame and all this wisdom and all this wealth, there was a horrible dark side that was developing inside of Solomon. Our first area of concern is his drive for building projects. It says in 1 Kings 9, King Solomon built the house of the Lord and his own house and the Milo and the wall of Jerusalem and Hazor and Megiddo and Gezer and lower Beth Horon and Baloth and Tamar in the wilderness in the land of Judah, and all the store cities that Solomon had, and the cities for his chariots, and the cities for his horsemen, and whatever Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem, in Lebanon, and in all the land of his dominion. Now, no one would question the importance of building the temple, but what about all these other projects? Could it be that he was going a bit overboard? 
And where did he find all the laborers? In 1 Kings chapter 5, it says, King Solomon drafted forced labor out of all Israel, and the draft numbered 30,000 men. Solomon also had 70,000 burden bearers and 80,000 stone cutters in the hill country. Besides Solomon's 3,300 chief officers who were over the work, who had charge of the people who carried on the work. At the king's command, they quarried out great costly stones in order to lay the foundation of the house with dressed stones. So it seems here that Solomon had a mandatory labor conscription program. Now this caused a lot of bitterness among the people of Israel, and this becomes clear as we look at what happened in the life of Solomon's son, Rehoboam. But we'll put that on hold for now because there's something going on with Solomon's building programs that's even more upsetting. It appears that Solomon tried to enslave all of the non-Hebrew people who were living in the land. In 1 Kings chapter 9, it says, All the people who were left of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, who were not of the people of Israel, their descendants who were left after them in the land, whom the people of Israel were unable to devote to destruction, these Solomon drafted to be slaves, and so they are to this day. But of the people of Israel, Solomon made no slaves. So in this case, we're not talking about temporary conscription. This was a process of rounding up all the quote-unquote foreigners who were living in the land and turning them into slaves. So whereas it's easy to celebrate all the successes that Solomon had with his construction projects, the dark underside is that he was really a tyrant among his own people, and he was the orchestrator of a mass system of human enslavement. Now let's talk about Solomon's sex life. In 1 Kings 11, it famously notes that Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. The text also says that a lot of these women were from other nations. Now, when I was young, I had this picture in my head of Solomon living in a massive palace in Jerusalem and a thousand women living with him in the house. But I now understand that historically, this never could have been the case. The city of David is a tiny area, and archaeologists estimate that during his reign, the city might have had about 2,000 residents. And so half of these would not have been Solomon's women. If King Solomon did have a vast number of wives, chances are that they would have lived in multiple locations, and he probably didn't know most of them very well. The fact that so many of these women were from other nations seems to suggest that these were political alliances. So the 300 wives may point to Solomon's numerous political marriages. But what's really concerning in this account is the 700 concubines. These women would not have been foreign princesses. They would simply have been women that Solomon wanted to sexually preserve for himself. Now again, the number of wives and concubines may be exaggerated, but what I think this text points to is what today we would call sex addiction. Any man, fictional or historical, who sets aside for himself 1,000 permanent sexual partners has a problem. Enough said on that point. 
Now let's talk about Solomon's fidelity to God. In his early years, we see through Solomon's prayers that he was a man who was deeply in tune with the heart of God. But as he grew older, something changed. In 1 Kings 11, it says, And his wives turned away his heart. For Solomon went after Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. Now, this, of course, is all very tragic. The guy who built and dedicated the temple in Jerusalem is now building altars for other gods on the high places of Israel and worshiping these false gods on those sites. But what is particularly upsetting in this account is the mention of the Ammonite god Molech. Now, although the passage in 1 Kings 11 doesn't give any details, what we know from other passages in the Bible is that the worship of Molech involved child sacrifice. From various texts, starting with Leviticus and then going on through the book of Jeremiah, it is noted that Molech was a god that was worshipped by offering children in the fire. In the city of Jerusalem, Molech's altar was in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, and this location became associated with the presence of a great darkness and evil. The Hebrew term for Ben-Hinnom is transliterated into Greek as Gehenna. And in the New Testament, Gehenna is what Jesus refers to as a place of eternal suffering and judgment. So, by all accounts, the worship of Molech was associated in the Old Testament and the New Testament as the place where the darkest expression of evil was to be found. A rabbinic Jewish source called the Tankuma says this, How did Molech work in the valley of Ben-Hinnom? It was built outside of Jerusalem. It was an idol with the face of a calf and open hands like someone who wants to take something from another. They would light this idol on fire until his hands were scorching. There were seven chambers before him, and according to the quality of the sacrifice, that is how close one could come to him. If one came with a bird, then chamber one, a goat, chamber two, a sheep, chamber three, a calf, chamber four, a cow, chamber five, an ox, chamber six. He who brought his child, the priest would say that he is offering the greatest sacrifice. He would enter the innermost chamber and go kiss the Molech. The priest would then take the child and place it near the Molech. They would then bang with drums to drown out the cries. So, it seems pretty clear that the author of 1 Kings 11 is suggesting that Solomon was offering his own children in sacrifice to Molech. Now, let's think about this. At this moment in history, this is the most important family on earth. God's promise to bless all nations through the seed of Abraham is now channeled through the seed of David, and Solomon is David's heir. These children that Solomon is offering to Molech are David's own grandchildren. These are children upon whom God's promises for the human race are riding, 
and they're being sacrificed to an idol. Can you hear, imagine the scream emoji? This is absolutely unconscionable. So let's do a recap on all the evil that's on display in the life of Israel's most wise, wealthy, and powerful king. We've noted that he is a tyrant over his own people. He has set up a racially based system of enslavement. He's a sex addict. He's an idol worshiper and he offers his own children to idols in human sacrifice. The question we have to ask is, why are the Hebrew authors so willing to paint such an ugly picture of the man who was destined to be their greatest king? Is this just meant to be one more example of human depravity? Is the takeaway that all humans are horribly corrupted and that there's no hope for anyone to be good? That doesn't seem to be the thrust of the narrative. When you read the account of Solomon's life, it becomes clear that Solomon had the potential for both good or evil. David's final words to his son in 1 Kings chapter 2 were these, I am about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man, and keep the charge of the Lord your God walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Solomon was not predestined to be evil. He had the potential to be good, and he really did start out as a godly man. But then everything went horribly wrong. So what's the theological lesson to be learned here? What we're really getting at is the problem of evil. Why are human beings, whom the Bible describes as being created in the image and likeness of God, capable of so much evil? And why, in this particular case, is the darkest, most vile expression of evil being carried out by a man who began his adult life with a real and meaningful relationship with Yahweh? The biblical authors don't do a lot of philosophizing around this question, but 1 Kings 11 does give us some insight into their way of thinking. Verse 9 says that Solomon committed all this great evil because his heart had turned away from the Lord. Now that may seem a bit simplistic, but this statement actually gives us a lot to think about. When the Bible talks about the heart, it's pointing to our emotions, and most importantly, to our love. The suggestion seems to be that Solomon fell out of love with Yahweh his God. In other words, Solomon committed great acts of evil because he no longer loved God. In the Bible, love for God is the moral compass. Love gives people the ability to discern between good and evil. Love for God is the power of morality. It is only through love for God that people find the power to resist temptation and to do what is right. 
And this seems to be confirming what we've been saying all along. Yahweh, the God of Israel, is a relational God. He calls his people to an emotionally engaged, intimate love relationship with himself. When this love is real, and when it is nurtured, nothing can overcome it. But when love wanes, as it did in the case of Solomon, evil seems to be good, and good seems to be evil. Confusion enters in, followed by oppression and depravity. The lesson learned here is that the way of Yahweh, the God of Israel, is only known and walked upon by those who live in intimate love relationship with him. And it's here that we'll end this episode. In the next episode, we'll continue to embrace the chaos as we look at what the Bible presents as the consequences of Solomon's sin as it unfolds in the life of his family and in the kingdom of Israel. Thank you for joining me today. I'm David Clark, and this is Theology and Identity.